0: Financial markets have started out 2024 with a bang. We've seen record highs for the S&P 500 and record-setting month of issuance for the credit markets in the month of January. Will this narrative stay the course for the entirety of 2024? Will we see another repeat of 2023, which was a year characterized by U.S. exceptionalism? Welcome to Research Recap on J.P. Morgan's Making Sense podcast channel. I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research at J.P. Morgan. I'm joined by my colleague, Jan Lois, who covers long-term strategy at J.P. Morgan. In today's podcast, we look at the key themes driving global markets and economies in 2024 and beyond. Jan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Jan, can you start us off by giving us your take on U.S. exceptionalism? Will it continue to play out in 2024, or are we at the peak right now?
1: I think it will. I think it's too early to go short on America. This is an enormous issue for international investors. What to do with this massive U.S. market that has become 60% plus of world equities, world bonds, on an economy that's just a bit more than a quarter of world GDP. Can you ignore this market? Is it safe in front of such profound elections that are coming later this year. So it's safe to be that fully invested in America. It has been performing massively well. In the last 14, 15 years since the financial crisis, the U.S. equity market has performed more than 10% per annum compared to only 5% in the rest of the world. So your 100 bucks invested in U.S. equities are $500 by now, they're barely $200 in the rest of the world. So the whole idea that, wait a minute, do you really want to keep investing that much in a country where politics is so divided? A dollar that's very expensive, an equity market that is also very expensive, a fiscal situation that seems to be completely uncontrolled, that's been leading a lot of investors in the world to say, I don't want to put that much risk in America. And we thought also several years ago, given the expensiveness of a dollar, it's time to go on their way to bed. Well, you and I had to give up on that a year ago. I'm very impressed by the resilience the flexibility of this economy coming out of COVID, the democratic institutions are working well. Yes, there's some issues in Washington, but the states are functioning quite well. The country is massively innovative with huge funding for venture capital. We're still attracting the best brains of the world. And yes, demography, fertility rates are low, but we still have massive immigration. So I say one should stay fully invested in the United States As we say, don't fight the Fed. Let's say, don't go short on America. So, Joyce, looking at the bigger picture, the markets have rallied strongly since beginning of the year, and indeed, the US is outperforming. You think the global macro outlook is consistent with what the markets are telling us? What do you see as the risks ahead?
0: Thanks so much for that question, Jan. And I think you're right. It's all about the U.S. for better or for worse. But valuations are looking very stretched here. Early 2024 is really noteworthy for the level of capital markets activity. So we have the heaviest issuance on record across credit markets. I mean, it hit a record of $361 billion, and inflows have been running at two and a half times the pace that we've seen for the past five years. So everything is getting priced to perfection here from an evaluation standpoint. But it's hard to argue that the technicals or the fundamentals are getting any weaker as of now. But I want to highlight three key risks. First, it's really too early to declare victory on inflation. Inflation has certainly stepped down materially, but global core CPI remains sticky at 3% for the first half of this year. And if we take a look at services inflation, it's 2% above pre-pandemic levels while disinflation for goods is being tested. So let's take a look at the split between the goods sector and the private service sector. And that shows that a soft landing is occurring in the goods sector, but we're seeing some reacceleration in the private service sector. And the persistence of service price inflation reflects very strong demand for travel, airlines, hotel, restaurants, concerts, entertainment, sporting events. And these events are non-cyclical and benefiting still from the post-COVID tailwinds. We also see tighter labor markets and wage pressures that remain ongoing. And the geopolitics also matter. Taking a look at what's happening to shipping costs and looking at the Red Sea and also the Panama Canal, this could add seven-tenths of a percentage point to global core goods CPI if it's persistent. So, in short, the Fed is not done fighting inflation. We're not changing our view that we're going to see the first rate cut in June, mid-year. And the same for the central bank's ECB at the European Central Bank and the Bank of England all around mid-year.
1: Yes, Joyce, inflation indeed got a lot of attention, but so has the uncontrolled rise of the U.S. indebtedness and its implications for markets. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Jan. I mean, the U.S. debt and deficit are unusually large with rising interest payments. And there's still a big debate amongst forecasters on where long term interest rates are going to settle. Some people say 3%, some people say percent. We've made this very clear in our views that we see a secular rise in bond yields as here to stay over the longer term. And this includes the fiscal debt, but also the demographics, the macro volatility, deglobalization forces. I mean, we're still looking at a 10-year U.S. Treasury real yield target of around two and a quarter percent here. So we do have a secular rise in bond yields and unusually high deficit and debt that are issues. And I think that this is going to attract more attention. When we look at the rise in net interest payments, this was something around $350 billion in 2021. And this year, looking at the Congressional Budget Office projections, it's going to approach around $750 billion, going to a trillion dollars. And looking at the balance sheet, We are seeing some of the quantitative tightening that the Fed has done, that they are going to make some shifts in the monthly cap of the runoff of Treasury securities, reducing that around 30 billion per month, down from 60 billion. And I think that will be forthcoming in the second half of the year.
1: And what about a third risk choice?
0: The final risk that I want to point out is the real divergence, which you mentioned, Jan, between the outlook for the U.S. and the rest of the world. The lack of a slowdown in 2023 surprised the Fed, it surprised consensus, it surprised the markets. But this was only a U.S. story. The story outside of the U.S. is one of divergence and broad-based growth weakness, with risks that are still surprising more to the downside. So we think the euro area has a bumpy road ahead to lower inflation, and GDP was stagnant in the fourth quarter, but you still see that employment growth remains in positive territory. So that's a dilemma. China will achieve its 5% growth target this year, but the medium-term risk have not gone away. And we are still seeing the issues that are a drag in China from the real estate market, that private investment has been slowing, coming back, and that inflows are not coming into China at this point in time. So I think we're looking at China where we see that consumption retail sales have disappointed, the housing market activity is weak, and fixed asset investment is modestly above expectations, but it's not really helping the consumption here.
1: Thanks for that, Joyce. Of course, All eyes will be on the 2024 presidential election in the U.S. How will domestic politics reshape the broader geopolitical landscape?
0: So 2024 is a record-breaking year for elections. Elections are taking place in 77 countries, and that includes the U.S., the EU, the U.K., Mexico, India, Russia. And we just saw Taiwan's elections as well. But I would say the U.S. race is arguably the one race with global, broad consequences. Looking at history, elections have usually had little impact on the underlying macro trends. Markets have typically been volatile in the run-up to an election, only to rally thereafter once the uncertainty is removed, irrespective of the outcome. But there are reasons to believe that this cycle might be different. We have to consider that we've seen a 17-year decline in democracy and global freedom. We have two wars that are raging at the same time. We have fragmentation that's occurring on the economic side that's taking hold and mounting concerns that the world is separating into blocks. So the return of a systemic rivalry between democracies on one side and China and Russia on the other has resulted in an ongoing separation of the world's economy into new networks and alliances outside of formal institutions and the institutions established after World War II. For many elections, there are competing visions for the future with respect to the international order and economic policy, and we've seen a real rise in industrial policy and more regulatory uncertainty that's emerging. We've also seen that this is affecting cross-border movements. There have been more restrictions on capital, on technology, on movement of workers, on international payments. And we are looking at certain sectors, such as the critical minerals and semiconductors, really being impacted.
1: Do you think we'll see a resurgence in populist regimes?
0: So it's unclear that there's going to be a resurgence of populist regimes. We may actually have seen the peak of this in 2018, 2019. But irrespective of the election results, populist politics are here to stay. And we have seen structural social shifts that have moved populism into the mainstream here. But I do want to point out that not all political and geopolitical risks are created equal. And looking at the U.S. elections, the consequences for foreign policy, I think, are going to be greater than the performance of the domestic economy. And the EU is another example. The EU has a high number of parliamentary elections and center-right parties that have risen in many countries. But this seems to be mostly opposition to more immigration rather than polarization or a rise in anti-EU sentiment. So we don't see so much systemic risk from these elections because you've seen a broader reduction of the anti-EU stance and the institutional and practical obstacles to an EU exit are actually very high. Similarly, In the U.S., you've got a lot of checks and balances between the White House, Congress, the states having the ability to legislate on certain things, and also the regulatory bodies. But I think the U.S. foreign policy implications are what will be the focus in the coming elections So, Jan, let's just stay on the geopolitics here. There's a lot of discourse about deglobalization and whether we've shifted to geoeconomic fragmentation and whether we're looking at regional trading blocks going forward with respect to trade and capital flows. What is your take on this?
1: Well, you're right. There's a lot of talk, there's not a lot of reality yet. In the last few decades, almost feels like borders have disappeared. The world is flat and we as investors and companies think about we can just go anywhere. But there's now a bit of opposition from particular corners against this free flow. Not everybody has been gaining from this. Some people have been losers. And we see, particularly in the major capitals of the world, some concern that this free flow is a threat to their own national security. So there's some restrictions emerging, particular sectors that major countries consider important to their national security. But overall, the end consumers, the companies, the producers and people like a flat world. They want to go everywhere. Will we possibly have two? major blocks and complete free flow of information and goods within each block. It's a possibility, but I don't think so, because these two countries are not the whole world, meaning China and the United States. So you could see they're pursuing certain rules where they're trying to pull their friends into an alliance around them, so-called French shoring and say within our own group of countries, we really have a almost globalized world. The U.S. has been pursuing this. China initially seemed to be following more the wolf warrior strategy of elbowing itself onto the world scene, and it soon learned that didn't really work very well. And the learning from the experience and the success of the United States in building alliances, and now China is pursuing a strong policy of binding countries to itself, partly due to money partly due to having the common opponent, the United States. I'd say they are still favor the so-called Western Alliance. It's been there a lot longer, held together by common values, and the China Alliance is still trying to define what are those common values. In addition, those countries not yet part of that, sometimes called the Global South. are looking at this and saying, eh, no, we don't want to be bound by one or those two blocks, and they're shopping around. In certain areas, they will join the western side. In other areas, they go on the eastern side. And whatever they do in one year doesn't tell us what they're going to be doing the next year. So all these linkages and allies are going to be very, very fluid they can change from year to year. The leading countries brought Latin America, Brazil, South Africa. You have the Middle East with the Saudis showing that not just part of one part. You have India going from one side to another. So I think there's going to be a fluid world without strict lines. Can you call it multipolar? I'm not sure there are any poles left in here. There'll be a lot of changes. But overall, my message would really be people like a global world, and the corporates, the banks, similarly. So there's a lot of opposition to bringing borders back. There'll be a bit here and there, but overall, you still have to think about largely a globalized world.
0: Jan, I think you just raise a really great point. We're in this world of really flexible cooperation. I think multipolar doesn't really capture it. You're going to see shifts and countries acting in their self-interest and not wanting to choose sides.
1: Absolutely, Joyce. Let's discuss now one of the biggest talking points of 2023, the rise of AI. Is this technology a game changer? How is it becoming an instrument in the growing strategic competition among nations, particularly the U.S.-China relationship?
0: Well, Jan, you really can't talk to anyone without AI coming into the discussion. And that's why I want to just say it's still early days here and a lot has gotten priced in. So we've seen significant attention and corporate focus, but generative AI is really still in an experimentation phase. But I have to say this unlike traditional AI, which is purpose built for singular use cases, generative AI has multiple applications and reusability. And it's hard to think of any technology that has been available and accessible without costs so easily to so many people at the same time. But because of the conversational interface, the ability to use generative AI is really democratized. One doesn't have to be a technologist to use it. Now, we do see a pretty big revenue opportunity here. If you take a look at the International Data Corporation, it expects that generative AI investments will grow to $143 billion by 2027. But we still need to really figure out and identify the compelling use cases, the cost efficiencies, and what is scalable. But let's just talk a little bit about U.S. China. So data is the fuel for AI, and some have argued that China's ownership of its data gives them a structural advantage. But some of the industrial policy that has been put into place with the White House executive order is making it harder for them to progress. The other thing that really is going to gather greater discussion is the ethics around using AI. There's an increased focus on responsible velocity, which means that to keep our edge, we have to innovate with velocity, but we also have to ensure appropriate guardrails. There's a mix of things we still need to look at, the internal cost efficiencies, the improvements to current products, the creation of new products. But I do want to bring this back to geopolitical risk and say a final word on AI and the elections. As the world prepares for this record-breaking series of elections, the advances in AI may very well affect some of these upcoming election outcomes as the technology can be used to generate deep fakes and spread misinformation. And that is something that is raising red flags on democratic governance. Social media has amplified populist rhetoric. It's had an influence on election outcomes. And the use of generative AI poses major risks to safeguarding democratic processes and ensuring free and fair elections. And as we wrap up today's conversation, I want to turn to the strategic portfolio and look at the medium-term forces here and what you recommend with respect to asset allocation, given the risks that we've talked about.
1: Well, Joyce, the way one builds one portfolio is to first think about returns and risk, given the massive rally in equities and the expensiveness, of high multiples together with the backup in bond yields, the excess return one can make on equities over bonds has shrunk a lot. So the whole argument that one should ignore fixed income and be primarily invested in equities, I think is a bit outdated now. And it's important to balance one's assets across both the bond and the equity world, and do still stay with some form of 60-40 equity bond balance for most investors, and then you can adjust that depending upon how far in time, how old you are. And I have a bit of an allocation to hedge funds there, given the high volatility, the macro volatility. In the equity world, I really start with the developed world, A, all cap in both large, mid, and small cap equities. I do think some climate funds make sense over here. In a lower nominal return world, value tends to do better. Healthcare is underperformed in the US, but it outperformed in the rest of the world, giving aging and new technologies. I want to retain the long-term healthcare outperformance. Finally, I have a minimum allocation to emerging. Nothing wrong with growth. It's simply in a dangerous part of the world where it's too hot. The climate is going to affect these countries. So overall, a very simple, basic approach. There's still more equities than bonds. And a few sectors here and there to benefit from these medium forces that you and I have been debating here.
0: Thanks so much for that, Jan, and I do still think that, yeah, we still have more equities than bonds, but the bonds, even with the rally we've seen, probably are still under-owned in some pockets, and I think you're right, the yield differential there has been decreasing, so there's space for that still to continue. But Jan, thank you so much for those insights, and thank you for taking the time to discuss these important issues on asset allocation on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Joyce.
0: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you will join the dialogue and come back and join us again next time. Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.